Amen. Praise God. Let's bow our heads for prayer, shall we? Thank you so much, dear Lord, that even though we have forfeited paradise, the Garden of Eden, in choosing to rebel against you, we thank you, Lord, that you sent your son Jesus. And through his death on the cross, paradise can be restored to each one of us once again. And just as you promised to that thief on the cross that we would be with you in paradise, Lord, we, we thank you for that assurance that we can have tonight. And Lord, as we have come to this place, we come seeking a blessing uh, to hear a word from you, not a word from a man, but a word from God. And so I pray, dear God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would fill this room and that you'd fill our hearts that you'd give to us an, an encounter with the living Christ today, and that we would understand this message, but more than just understanding it, that we would experience the power of your love that is able to transform our lives. Please, Lord, help us to have a teachable spirit tonight. Help us to put aside our own pre-opinionated ideas that we might have concerning this topic. And I pray, Lord, that through your spirit, we would reason together with the scriptures, that you give us clarity and conviction, and most of all, that you would reveal yourself to us afresh. This is our prayer, and we pray this in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Amen. Our message tonight, entitled, Israel in Bible Prophecy. It was early Friday morning, which is the Muslim holy day, January of 1984, when Israeli extremists climbed over the wall of the Muslim-controlled Temple Mount in Jerusalem. These Israeli extremists were carrying over 250 pounds of explosives. Their goal that morning was to blow up the Muslim Dome of the Rock there on that holy ground in order to prepare the way for the rebuilding of a third Jewish temple on that sacred site. They were spotted by the Muslim guard and chased away, and so their plot had failed. But the Supreme Muslim Council, they, they, they made a statement after realizing that what these individuals were trying to do. They, they said that if this attempt was successful, that all Arab countries would have launched a holy war against Israel. The Jerusalem newspaper read that it would have been the disaster of the decade, and many people trembled in fear at, of the potential of mass bloodshed and war. And friends, as we think about attacks like this and attacks that have intensifying over and over again throughout the years, many people are wondering and, and asking the question, could a future event like this lead to the battle of Armageddon? And will such a battle be centered in the Middle East? And could the rebuilding of a third Jewish temple trigger such an event? And does Bible prophecy indeed predict a final holy war against Israel? Well, majority of the Christian world will say yes to all those questions. In fact, entire books and movies and cinemas have been made to support that understanding. In fact, uh, the most, undoubtedly the most popular series is the Left Behind series. There are also movies that correspond with the books. And the, one of the main teachings in these series of books is that Israel is going to be the epicenter of end-time events, that a temple is going to be rebuilt there in Jerusalem, and that Antichrist 
will sit in that temple in the midst of a seven-year tribulationary period that will take place after the secret rapture. And so Antichrist will appear in that temple of the Jews, making a covenant with Israel, causing the sacrifices to cease. And thus, many people in the world, especially in the evangelical Christian world, have their eyes fixed on the Middle East, looking for the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. In fact, notice how many evangelical Christians responded when Israel was refounded as a state in 1948. The U.S. News and World Report ran an article entitled Dark Prophecies where they quoted a prominent evangelical leader that said these words, No single modern event has stirred more apocalyptic excitement than the founding of the state of Israel. When the United Nations charted Israel in 1948, the final countdown had begun said this evangelical leader. Now, friends, this word Israel is important. As I mentioned, it's, it's found over 3,000 times in the Bible, which makes it very important. In fact, as I said before, so important that the only way we can have a correct understanding of end-time events is if we first have a correct understanding of Israel. For if, if our understanding is faulty, then our conclusions about the end are going to be faulty as well. As we said before, a house is only as strong as its what? Foundation. Therefore, the foundation must be strong if our theological house is going to stand against the scrutiny and the, and the questions uh, of men. And so here's the questions we're going to ask tonight. What is Israel's role in end-time events? Before we can answer that, though, we first have to ask the more foundational, fundamental question of who is Israel? We can't know Israel's role in end-time events if we don't know who Israel is first. Are you with me? And so we're going to, are you with me? Okay, so we're basically, basically going to divide tonight's topic into two main parts. Number one, who is Israel in the Old Testament? Number two, who is Israel in the New Testament? And essentially what we're going to get to is this. Is modern-day Israel still the Israel of God? Well, friends, let's begin by studying the origin of the word Israel in the Bible. It all began with a man whose name was Abraham. God called him to be the father of a very special people. God wanted to bless the world through his descendants. And at the old ripe age of 100 years old, Abraham had the promised son, Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And of these two boys, God called Jacob to be the promised son and the progenitor of the coming seed, the Messiah. And it's Jacob, that man Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, which is the very first time we find the word Israel mentioned in the Bible. It's found in Genesis 32. So if you take your Bible and open there with me, what we're doing tonight or right now is we want to study the, the organic, original way the word Israel is used in the Bible. It's found in Genesis 32, and as you're turning there, that's the first book in the Bible, the 32nd chapter, page 36, if you're using our seminar Bible. Let me give you the context as you're turning there. That man whose name was Jacob was the one God changed to the name Israel, the first time we find it mentioned in the Bible. Now, the word Jacob means deceiver or supplanter. Now, that is interesting because 
Jacob's name was a fit description of who Jacob was in character. You see, friends, names in the Bible have deep meaning, and many times a person's name was, it was a reflection of that person's character or life, and Jacob was no exception to that. His life was a reflection of his name because if you remember the story, he was the one that deceived his father Isaac, and he stole the birthright blessing from his brother Esau. He was truly Jacob a deceiver and a liar. And when that took place, the betrayed brother Esau was so angry that he vowed that he would seek vengeance on Jacob, that he would kill Jacob. And as a result of this threat on his life, Jacob had to, had to flee as a fugitive. He went to another land where he remained for 20 years. And though he sinned much on his way to Mesopotamia in his father. Uh, excuse me, his uncle Laban's lamb, on his way there, he fell asleep in the wilderness, and he had a dream. And in this dream, God gave him the assurance that even though he was a deceiver and a supplanter and a liar, and even though he tried to fulfill God's promise by his own works, that he was forgiven because God saw his heart, that he, was, he had a repentant heart. And so God forgave him and gave him the assurance that he would be the promised, Messiah, uh, the promised son, the progenitor of the coming Messiah, and he would receive the birthright blessing. And so Jacob remains for 20 years. After 20 years, passes. Finally, God tells Jacob, it's now time to go back home to your father's land to receive the blessing I promised to you. And so Jacob, at this time in his life, is a very wealthy man. And so he goes back home with a bunch of riches, and he, he, he has a big family. He, he goes back home with his wives and his children, and on his way back home, he sends messengers before him with gifts to greet his brother Esau. Those messengers come back bearing a message of bad news. They basically say, say to Jacob, Jacob, your brother Esau is still bitter and angry over the wrong you've committed against him 20 years ago. He has not forgiven you. He is angry. And Jacob, he knows you're coming now. And he's coming right now with 400 men of war coming to seek vengeance upon you. And when Jacob heard that bad news, now his past is coming back to haunt him. How in the world could he defend himself against his brother Esau with these 400 men of war? Here he is, friends, with his wives and children totally vulnerable. Esau was a skillful hunter but Jacob was a mama's boy. And so fear fills his heart because he can't defend himself. He is helpless. How is, he going to how is he going to protect his family and his possessions? His past is coming back to haunt him. He's reaping the results of the sin that he had sown 20 years ago when he lived up to his name, Jacob, deceiver and a liar. And so Jacob is afraid, you can imagine. He's afraid for his life and the life of his family. So what does he do when he's afraid? He goes to God in prayer. Can he say amen? And he begins to pray. He separates himself from his family, and he, and, he, and, he, and he prays, and he cries out to God. Not only is he afraid for his life, but friends, the thing that really troubled Jacob in this time is, is this. It seems like God's promise is not going to be fulfilled. Remember, God said, you're going to be the promised son. You're going to receive the, the birthright bless blessing. But as he goes back to claim the promise, it seems like it's not going to be fulfilled. His circumstances are going against the promise of God. And so Jacob is wrestling in his mind with the, with the thought, did God really promise me? 
Am I really a forgiven man? Was it real, that vision I saw 20 years ago? Am I really forgiven? Is God's promise, is it real? He's engaged in a mental battle, friends. A what kind of battle? Over the wrong decision he made 20 years ago. He feels a deep sense of guilt and remorse and regret. His past is coming back to haunt him. And so he's praying and agonizing with God in prayer, wondering, was I really forgiven? Am I really going to receive the blessing of God? And as he's engaged in this mental battle, all of a sudden while praying, he is overtaken by someone physically thinking that it was a thief or maybe his brother Esau, he, uh, he turns and he wrestles with this unknown being all night long. And now we pick up the story in Genesis 32 and verse 24. Notice what happened to Jacob. Genesis 32 verse 24, if you're there, would you please say amen? And Jacob was left alone and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. In other words, all night long, Jacob was wrestling with this unknown being. All night long. You see, at first it was just a mental battle, but now the battle turns physical. He is wrestling with all his might. And then verse 25, And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he, that is this unknown being, he touched the hollow of his, that's Jacob's thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint, as he wrestled with him. Now Jacob, when he receives that touch by this unknown being, his thigh gets out of joint, he feels the pain, and now it, he realizes that he was not wrestling with just a physical man. He was wrestling with a supernatural being that had supernatural strength. It was more than he could handle. And as the day breaks, Jacob is physically weakened by a night of wrestling. He has a terrible injury that leaves him powerless to fight on. Not only that, but he's also mentally drained by the doubts and the fears of his current situation. Jacob was at the breaking point. He's ready to give up. He's ready to tap out. Have you ever been there in your life? The struggles and trials of life are so overwhelming, financial difficulties, health problems, marital problems, problems with your kids. You have constant migraines and you have anxiety attacks and, and life just feels so overwhelming and you're at that breaking point. You feel like you can't go on. You're physically and mentally and emotionally exhausted. That's where Jacob was, friends. He was rock bottom. And friends, the good news is that when you hit rock bottom, there's only one way you can go, and that's up. Amen? And so he is hitting rock bottom. He's, he's at the breaking point, and, and now he realizes that he has, has been fighting against the very one that came to give him sweet rest. He has been fighting with the Lord, friends. And I want you to notice what this heavenly messenger says to Jacob. Verse 26. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. Let me go for the day breaks. The angel of the Lord commands Jacob, let me go. But Jacob realizes that if he lets go of this heavenly messenger, that all will be lost. How could he go to battle against Esau with his terrible injury? 
Jacob realizes that his only hope is to hang on to this heavenly messenger. And so in response, he says, I will not let you go. And friends, we have to understand the significance of what Jacob is saying here. When he said, I will not let you go, he was not boasting of physical strength because he knew who he was dealing with. He knew that physically he could not overcome this supernatural being. When he said, I'm not going to let you go, it wasn't so much physically, but rather by faith. He was saying, my faith is going to hang on. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to let you go away without you giving me the blessed assurance that my sin was forgiven. Jacob says, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. By faith, I'm going to hang on. I'm not going to miss this opportunity. You see, Jacob, in desperate faith, is pleading for the blessing that his circumstances are saying is not going to be realized. His faith is clinging to God in prayer, friends. He's not going to let go. He's not going to give up. And that's what you need to say to God when you feel like giving up. You, you, by faith, you say, I'm not going to let you go. And it's more than a declaration. It's a plea to God for His blessing. It's a plea to God for strength to keep holding on, even though you feel like letting go. And friends, notice this type of faith God rewards. Because notice what it says in verse 27. And he said unto him, What is thy name? Now, that's an interesting question. Do you think this heavenly messenger knew exactly what Jacob's name was? Yes or no? Of course. So why is he asking if he already knows the answer? It's not because he needs to be informed. But he's asking the question because this was the question that, his, that Jacob's father Esau asked 20 years ago, and Jacob lied about his name, his identity. Do you remember that? Three times, in fact, Esau said, are you really my, uh, excuse me, uh, Isaac, I should say. Isaac was the father. Esau was the brother. Isaac said, are you really my son Esau? And he said, yes, I am Esau, but really he was Jacob. He was lying about his identity. And so now God is asking, what is your name? And it's more than uh, just asking the title by which he was called. To ask what his name was was, to ask, was, was basically a, an invitation to confess the sinful condition of his life. You see, last time he was asked that, he lied about his identity. And as a result of that lie, he had to flee from home, never to see his mother again. Because of lying about his identity, he became the object of his brother's hate. And for the last 20 years, Jacob had to have been thinking about that question. And all the trouble that that question caused him when he did not tell the truth concerning that question. Last time he was asked that, he lied. He lived up to his name as a deceiver, a supplanter. He was Jacob. What will he do now? Is he going to lie again? Is he going to lie to God too? Will he live up to his name yet again? You see, his future and the future of his family hangs upon how he's going to answer this question to God. Eternal destiny are about to be decided. And what was his answer? And he said, 
Jacob. And friends, when Jacob told the truth about his name, it was more than just saying the title by which he was called. In saying, yes, I am Jacob, it was a confession of his sin as a deceiver, supplanter, and a liar. In, in other words, he was saying, I'm not worthy. Yes, I'm a liar. I am who my name is. And I'm not worthy. I don't deserve the blessing that I'm asking of you. Yes, my name is Jacob. He came clean about who he was. And the confession of his name was really a confession of his sin and the unworthiness of the blessing that he was asking for. And I want you to notice what God does when we, like Jacob, confess our sin to him. When we come clean about our lives and humble ourselves before the Almighty God, notice what God does to Jacob in verse 28. And he said, Thy name shall no longer be called Jacob, but... Israel, for as a prince, thou hast wrestled with, who was he wrestling with, by the way? Wrestled with God and prevailed. That's the first time we find the word Israel mentioned in the Bible, friends. It's the name God gave to that one man whose name was Jacob. When he confessed his sin and confessed who he really was, God was then able to change his name. And friends, to change his name to Israel was more than just changing the title by which he was called. A change of name represents a change of life, a change of character, a change of reputation. You will no longer be called as a deceiver and a supplanter. You will no longer be known as the one that lied. From now on, you will be known as Israel, the one that wrestled with Almighty God and prevailed, not physically, but spiritually by faith. You did not let me go you held on for dear life and because of that I'm giving you a brand new name a brand new character a brand new life can you say amen that's what God does friends God can change your name too oh let me tell you God has changed my name back in high school when I was doing drugs they used to call me a stony a chronic a pothead I used to walk around with my ukulele and the Bob Marley t-shirts and my hat covering my face and all, my eyes bloodshot red all the time. And they used to look at me and say, hey, Taj, you chronic. And I used to, I used to love being called that and, and you stony boy. And, and that's what uh, they used to call me, but they don't call me a chronic anymore. They don't call me a pothead anymore because I had an encounter with the God of Jacob who is a God of mercy and compassion and love. And that same God has changed my name, my life, my reputation, and my character. And the same God that changed me and my name wants to change your name tonight as well. Can you say amen? A brand new beginning, a brand new character, a brand new reputation. That's what it means, friends. Jacob, deceiver. Israel means prince of God, one that has wrestled with God and prevailed. And so we come to our first essential conclusion as to who is Israel in the Old Testament. And write this down, friends. Number one definition of Israel in the Old Testament. Israel first applies to one man that gained a spiritual victory. Israel first applies to how many? One man that gains a, not a physical one, he lost the wrestling match, but he won a spiritual victory. That's who Israel is in its original organic foundational sense of the word. It applies not to a whole nation, just one man that gains not a physical, but a spiritual victory. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? 
Now listen carefully, friends. When you study the Bible, in order to understand a topic correctly, you have to use the law of first usage. The law of what? And what, is that, what that means is this. Whenever a name or a topic is first used in the Bible, however it's used sets a precedent as to how that topic or name or subject is to be understood ever after in the Bible. It's the law of first usage. How it's first used sets a precedent, a foundation, as to how you're to understand that in later parts of the Bible. Does that make sense, yes or no? And so this is the foundation, friends. Who's Israel? It's one man that gains not a physical, but a spiritual victory that comes by hanging on in a time of crisis, hanging on by faith. And so as we continue, now that we have that foundation, we find that, it, that Jacob had 12 sons that became the heads of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. These are the descendants of Abraham. And so now the word Israel is broadened to include all the genealogical descendants of Abraham who gained that spiritual victory in their father Jacob. And so the word Israel is now a family name or a corporate term. At first it was just a name of one individual. But now that individual has children and that name is applied to the, that individual's children. It's, it's a family name, a corporate term. Now amongst the sons of Jacob, his youngest and favorite was the one whose name was Joseph. Joseph was a young man of integrity and faith in God, and as a result of the purity of his life, he excited the, the jealousy and the envy of his brothers. And, and what happened, the story tells us, is that they threw him into a pit and they sold him as a slave into Egypt. Joseph was sold into Egypt. But while in Egypt, because of his faithfulness to God in every single circumstance, God blessed Joseph and exalted him to a place right next to the Pharaoh a place where he was able to save the people of God, Israel, from the famine that hit the lands. You see, what happened was this. Joseph began to have dreams. He began to have what? And because of those dreams, it led him to the place in Egypt. He was exalted, and as a result, he was able to save the nation of Israel or the family of Israel from the wrath of of the famine that hit all the lands. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. And so what happened was this. The nation of Israel is now, or the, the family of Israel, is brought into Egypt where they are protected for a period of time. But then Jake, uh, when Joseph died, then later on there rose up a Pharaoh that knew not uh, Joseph. And as a result, the Israelites became slaves in Egyptian captivity. And after generation of, gener and generation of slavery, God sent a deliverer to call his people Israel to come out of Egypt. What was that deliverer's name? Moses. Moses approached the Pharaoh, and I want you to notice what he said in Exodus, 20, uh, excuse me, Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Write it down. Pharaoh, excuse me, Moses says to Pharaoh, speaking for God, Israel is my what? Son, even my what? Firstborn, let my son go. So here we find God uses the name Israel. Now he applies it to the whole nation. Israel is my son, my firstborn son. Let my son go. 
make a long story short, Pharaoh eventually capitulated after 10 plagues, and as a result, the firstborn son, Israel, was able to exit Egypt by the leadership of Moses, and Moses led them through the Red Sea. After they went through the Red Sea, they then spent the next 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And in that wilderness, they were severely tried. Their faith, their faith was severely tried in the wilderness for 40 years. And as they're in the wilderness, God then comes and makes a special covenant with the nation of Israel. But notice, friends, the covenant was not unconditional. It was a conditional covenant, a conditional agreement. Here is what it says. In Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, please write it down. Now, therefore, God says, what is this word right here? What does the word if imply? That there's a condition. So God is saying, now, therefore, if you will do what? Obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then shall you be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a what? <clears throat> a holy nation. So God makes a special covenant with the nation of Israel that just came out of Egypt. He said, if you will listen to me, obey my voice, keep my covenant, you will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a peculiar people, if you listen to me. It was conditional in nature. In fact, notice in Deuteronomy 28, verse 1 and 2, it says, and it shall come to pass, what's the word? If thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee. What's the word again? If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. So again, God reiterates the covenant in Deuteronomy 28. He says, if you listen, if you trust me, if you obey me, if you keep my covenant, then these blessings will be yours to keep. But what would happen if they did not obey and listen to God? Then God would give them into the hands of their enemies. It says in verse 15 and verse 25 of the same chapter and book. But it shall come to pass if that will not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all his commandments. The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Essentially, the covenant went like this. Obey and you will live. Disobey and you will die. That was the nature of the covenant that God made with the children or the nation of Israel. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? Now, the next question. Did Israel remain faithful to the covenant? Did they live up to God's desire and purpose for them? Sometimes yes, most times no. As you follow their history, their narrative, you'll find that after the glory years of King David and Solomon, because of their unfaithfulness and because they went about trying to work out their own salvation with their own righteousness and they began to follow other gods because they did not keep the covenant, God gave them into the hands of their enemies. They went into captivity, friends. And essentially, the 12 tribes of Israel were divided into just two, the southern tribe of Judah and the northern tribe of Israel. And if you study and follow the biblical narrative, you notice because of their unfaithfulness, the tribe of Israel was essentially lost and scattered in Assyrian captivity. And that's the books of Kings and Chronicles tells the whole story, of the northern tribe being unfaithful and being scattered amongst their Assyrians. 
Judah remained faithful a little bit longer, but because of their unfaithfulness, they were lost and scattered in Babylonian captivity. And that's the books of Jeremiah and the book of Daniel that describes that time. And there Judah remained scattered in captivity until the time of Nehemiah when the Persian kings gave them permission to go back to Jerusalem. And that's the books of Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah that describes that, that, that situation. And so we see that Israel in the Old Testament has two essential definitions. Number one, it applies to one man who gained a spiritual victory. And then number two, it applies to the descendants of that one man. But friends, notice, not just blood descendants, but those who are faithful to the covenant. In other words, the contingency for being a true Israelite, even in the Old Testament, was obedience to God. And this is clearly taught in the New Testament. Notice now as we compare the Old with the New. In Galatians 3, verse 6 and 7, the Bible says, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of what? Faith, the same are the children of who? Abraham. So in order to be a true child of Abraham, you had to exercise the same faith of Abraham. In other words, just because you, were the, you had his blood in your veins did not make you a true Israelite. You also had to exercise faith just like Abraham. In fact, Jesus taught the same thing in John chapter 8, verse 39 and 40. If you please write it down. The Bible says, and this was the Pharisees speaking to Jesus, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. You have to understand when those Pharisees said that, they said it with a sense of not only national but spiritual pride. They felt that because they were the children of Abraham that they were secure in the favor of God, that somehow that was a guaranteed ticket to heaven. So they said, Abraham is our father. But notice Jesus' response. What's that word right there? If you were Abraham's children, what's the implication? What's the implication? If you were, that means you are not really, right? Oh, you may have the literal blood of Abraham in your veins, but it takes more than that to be a child of Abraham. Because if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that had told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. And so, in order to be a true Israelite, you had to have the faith of Abraham, and exercise the works of Abraham as well. Because James chapter 2 tells us that faith without works is dead. Isn't that right? And so that is clear. Lineage doesn't amount to anything if we don't have faith. So true Israel is not just the literal descendants, but those faithful to the covenant. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? So we know who Israel is now in the Old Testament. The next question is, who is Israel in the New Testament. That's really what we want to find out tonight. You see, friends, the New Testament begins with Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes into this world, he does something absolutely amazing and remarkable that parallels the history of the nation of Israel. I want you to notice some amazing parallels. Jesus is born, and what happens is this. A man by the name of Joseph has dreams. What was Jesus' earthly father's name? Joseph, of course. And you remember, Joseph had dreams from God that instructed him to take the son 
Jesus Christ, the firstborn son, into Egypt, where he was able to find refuge from the wrath of King Herod. Does that sound familiar to you? Isn't that what happened in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, another man whose name was Joseph had dreams that led him to the place where the firstborn son, the nation of Israel, was led into Egypt, where they were able to find refuge from the wrath of the famine. We find an amazing parallel there. Not only that, but after a period of time, God called his son Israel to come out of Egypt. And when they exited, they went through the Red Sea. And friends, the crossing of the Red Sea, the going through the waters, was a symbol of baptism. It was a symbol of what? And you can find that in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 and 2. Paul makes the application that the crossing the Red Sea was like baptism. In the same way, friends, God called, after a period of time, God called his son Jesus to come out of Egypt. And when he began his public ministry, he also went through the waters of baptism in the river Jordan. Now, after going through the Red Sea, Israel then went into the wilderness for how long? Forty years. And after Jesus went through the waters of baptism, where did he go? He also went into the wilderness for how long? For 40 days. And there you have another example for the day for the year principle. And it's beginning to dawn upon us that, wow, the Bible is actually a lot deeper than we thought. Can you say amen? We see Jesus, through his own life, retracing the history of national Israel. Now, while in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted three times by Satan. And every time he was tempted, he overcame. But how? Not by using his divine power. Otherwise, he wouldn't be our example. He used the same power that's available to us, the Word of God. He quoted from the Scriptures. He says, it is written. But it's interesting that every time he was tempted, he quotes from the exact same book in the Old Testament. The first temptation, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8, 3. It is written, man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. The second temptation, if you're the Son of God, cast yourself down from this pinnacle, the angels will catch you. It is written, Satan, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and verse 16, the last temptation. I'll give you all the world, just bow down and worship me. Jesus says, it is written, thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and him shalt thou serve, quoting from Deuteronomy 10, verse 20. Why does Jesus quote from the same book every single time he was tempted? Friends, do you know what the book of Deuteronomy or who the book of Deuteronomy was written for? It was written for national Israel when they were in the wilderness to help them overcome all the adversities they would experience. But here's the difference. Israel failed miserably, whereas Jesus overcame victoriously. Can you say amen? And so we find some amazing parallels between national Israel and the life of Christ. Here they are in case you missed them. Number one, a man named Joseph has dreams and Israel and Jesus is led into Egypt for safety. After a period of time, God calls his son, the nation of Israel, and his son, Jesus Christ, to come out of Egypt. Israel goes to the Red Sea, which is a symbol of baptism. Christ goes to the River Jordan and is baptized. After that, Israel goes into the wilderness for 40 years. Christ goes into the wilderness of temptation for 40 days. 
And in that wilderness, Christ comes from Deuteronomy, the book that was written for national Israel. But he overcomes where Israel had failed. Now, friends, if you see that parallel, let me hear you say amen. Now, I wonder why Jesus does this. There has to be a reason, friends. And before we get to the punchline, let me just share with you one other thing concerning this. We're trying to find out who's Jesus, or excuse me, who's Israel in the New Testament. How did the New Testament writers view Jesus? They, they view Christ as the fulfillment of Israel. Let me show you. In Hosea 11 verse 1 is a verse that applies to national Israel when God brought them out of Egyptian captivity. It says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt. It applies to when Moses said to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, let my son go. So here's a verse, friends. And what does this verse apply to primarily? National Israel. But then notice as we turn in our Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 2. Please turn there with me quickly. Matthew, what chapter are we going to? Matthew chapter 2, that's page 974. If you're using the seminar Bible, we're going to Matthew chapter 2. And notice what the New Testament writer does with this Old Testament verse. Matthew 2 verse 13, if you're there, would you please say amen. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there till I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be, what is that next word? Fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, and now Matthew's about to quote the Old Testament, out of Egypt have I called my son. Where did Matthew just quote from? He just quoted from the verse we read in Hosea 11 verse 1. And what does this verse, who does this verse apply to? First, it applies to national Israel. But who does Matthew apply it to? Applies it to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. We're trying to find out who Israel is in the, in the New Testament. And by the way, this is one of many examples I can show you tonight. Over and over again, you'll find the gospel writers saying that it might be fulfilled, then they quote an Old Testament verse that applies to national Israel, but they apply it to Jesus. Why does the New Testament writers take the Old Testament verses and apply it to Jesus Christ? Well, friends, the reason is this. Who's Israel in the New Testament? It is none other than Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? Christ is the New Testament Israel. Just like in the Old Testament, Israel first applied to how many men? One man that gained the what kind of victory? Spiritual victory. So too in the New Testament, Israel first applies to one man that also gains a spiritual victory. Who is Israel in the New Testament? It is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because He is the true overcomer. He is the Prince of God, the Prince of Peace, the Child of the King. He is Israel, the one that was tempted in all points just like we are, yet without sin. He is the true overcomer. And friends, when you look at Christ, He did not win a physical victory. He was nailed physically to the cross. But through that death, He won a spiritual victory for each and every one of us. Israel in the New Testament is Jesus Christ. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? 
Oh, but it gets even clearer. Notice a few more scriptures on this. Isaiah 41 verse 8 says, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Israel's called the seed of Abraham. But who's the true seed of Abraham? Galatians 3.16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And he saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, which is who? So who's the true seed of Abraham? It's Jesus Christ, friends. Why? Because he was the one that exercised the same faith and the same works of Abraham. Israel in the New Testament is none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one that gained a spiritual victory. He is the Israel of God. Now, as I mentioned before, in the Old Testament, Israel first applies to one man that gains a spiritual victory. Then it applies to the descendants of that one man that also gain a spiritual victory. In the same way, in the New Testament, Israel first applies to one man that gains a spiritual victory, that is Jesus. And then it applies to the descendants of that same man that also gain a spiritual victory in Jesus. And that's us, the descendants of Jesus. Now the question is, how do you become a descendant of Jesus? Not by birth, but by rebirth. Not by being born once, but by being born again. We become the children of God. And this truth is clearly taught over and over again in the New Testament. Here's an example. There was an individual by the name of Nicodemus, a, 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 a national Israelite. He had the blood of Abraham flowing in his veins, and because of that, he felt secure in the favor of God. He sought a private interview with Jesus one night. Jesus looked at this self-righteous Pharisee, and he said to him what he really needed in order to be saved. In John 3, 3, Moses, surely I say to you, unless one is born, what? Again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, you're born once, and you think that because you're born uh, as a child of Abraham after the flesh that you're going to see the kingdom of God. But that's not true, Nicodemus. You have to be born a second time. You must be born again. In other words, as a national Jew, you must become a spiritual Jew in order to be saved because we're not saved by our own blood, friends. We're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? If you want to enter into the kingdom, if you want to receive the promises, it requires rebirth. You must be born again, and that's referring to spiritually. In fact, notice another one in Galatians. Here's probably the most clearest verse on this. Don't miss this verse, friends. Write it down. Galatians 3, 26 through 29, the Bible says, For you are all the children of God, how? By faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism is a symbol of being born again. And then it says, notice what happens. There is neither Jew nor Greek. In other words, when you are born again in Christ, there's no such thing as, as Jew or Greek. Neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are what? Abraham's seed and heirs according to the another word for promises covenant friends who is Israel in the New Testament is Jesus and those who have faith in Jesus doesn't matter what nationality you are red or yellow black and white all are precious in his sight Jesus loves the little children of the world amen 
You see, whether we're Jew or Greek, when we believe in Christ, we become spiritual Israel. And so what happens when you go to the New Testament, the Christian church are the heirs of the covenant. There's a clear transition from a literal nation now to a spiritual nation. How do we know? Because notice what it says in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Here the apostle Peter is writing, addressing the New Testament church that's made of both Jew and Gentile alike. And he says, you are a chosen generation, a royal what? Priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. So who is God's holy nation in the New Testament? It's not a literal nation in the Middle East, friends. It's the New Testament church. We become the priesthood of God. We are, a, we are a, a holy nation, not a literal one, but a spiritual one. And by the way, friends, when Peter applied this to the New Testament church, he was actually quoting directly from Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, because these are the same words God spoke to the literal nation of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Now those same words, that covenant, is applied to the New Testament church, those who belong to Christ. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? So, friends, we, what we see here is amazing. It's very different from what most people believe about Israel in the Christian world today. We find that in the Bible, there are actually two Israels. There's, number one, national Israel after the flesh. Those are the genealogical descendants of Abraham that, that are there in the Middle East, in Jerusalem, Palestine, and scattered throughout the whole world. But then you have spiritual Israel, the Israel of God after the Spirit, made up of a group of people from every race, including Jews who believe in Christ. And friends, I'm so thankful because of Jesus. It's not about race, it's about grace. Can you say amen? Now, some people might ask and wonder, well, didn't God say that all Israel will be saved? Yes. But which Israel is that verse referring to? Is it referring to a literal nation? No, friends, it's referring to the people of God, the spiritual nation. God will save all those who accept Him by faith. Does that include literal Jews? Of course, but the question is how? How are they going to be saved? The same way you and I are saved, the same way an American and an African and an Asian is saved. There's no two ways of salvation, friends. Everyone who's going to be saved are going to be saved by the grace of God, through faith in the grace of God. And that's what the Bible says here in Romans 11, verse 23. And they also, what's this word right here? If they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in how? Why again? Because they were the original stock. They were the first ones God called. But because of their unbelief, they were cut off, friends, as the representatives of God. But if they have faith, if they cease their unbelief and have faith in Christ, they can be grafted in again as individuals. Yes, of course they can be saved. This is not a message of hate. It's a message of love, friends. There's no anti-Semitism coming from this pulpit. Not at all. God loves them just as much as He loves every other person in this world. The Bible says that God is not a respecter of persons. Can you say amen? And so, many people wonder, though, well, must God fulfill all His promises that He made to the literal nation? No, friends. God is not obligated to fulfill any promise to anyone who did not meet the condition to the promise. You see, God's promises have conditions to it, and the promise is only for those who meet the condition. Notice what it says in Jeremiah 18, verse 9 and 10, and this also applies to a nation that God makes promises to. 
Jeremiah 18, verse 9 and 10 says, And the instant that I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, what's the word again? If it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will, what is this word? Relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. In other words, when God makes a promise, it doesn't mean that it's automatically going to be fulfilled. It's only fulfilled if the promise, the receiver of the promise meets the conditions. You see, don't, don't misunderstand this, friends. God's love is unconditional. Can you say amen? He will love us no matter what. His love is unchanging and everlasting. God's love is unconditional, but His salvation is conditional. It's based on the condition of faith in his grace. But will the promises be fulfilled? Yes. To who? To the one that met all the conditions. And who is the only one that met every condition to every promise of God? Jesus Christ, the one that is without sin. And that's why it says in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, talking about Christ, amen unto the glory of God by us. That's why Jesus is Israel, friends, because he's the true overcomer. He met every single condition to every promise, and so all the promises are fulfilled in him. But here's the good news that you ought to get excited about tonight. When we belong to Christ, when we have faith in Christ, when we accept the victory of Christ, all the promises fulfilled in Christ is now fulfilled in us. In other words, when you read the Bible, old or new, Every promise you see here, you can put your finger on that promise. Even though at first it was given to a little nation, you can put your finger there and say, this is my promise by faith in Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? And that's good news, folks. The promises will be fulfilled in the one that met the condition to all the promise. And, and, and so now that many of these promises are going to be fulfilled in a spiritual sense. The promise of the regathering of Israel is now going to be fulfilled in the New Testament Christian church when they're gathered into the new Jerusalem, when King Jesus comes the second time. God is going to gather all of his Israelites from the four corners of the earth, and they're going to come back to not a literal city, but a spiritual city, a literal city in heaven. That is the new Jerusalem. But some people might be wondering, but wasn't the establishment of Israel in 1948 a fulfillment of Bible prophecy? Now, friends, what happened in 1948 was a historical and monumental event. But it can't be a fulfillment of prophecy, friends. The reason why is because they did not meet the conditions to the prophecy. Not only that, but Israel was established as a state, not a kingdom. There is no king sitting on any throne in Israel, friends. It was established as a state. And I want to submit to you tonight that in these last days, Satan is using all the attention people are putting on modern Israel in the Middle East. He's using this as a distraction, as a decoy. Do you know what, do you know what a de decoy is? Something that diverts your attention from where you really ought to be looking. And all the attention that the evangelical Christian world is, is centering the Middle East, Satan is using as a decoy, friends, to turn our eyes away from the real issues of prophecy. And many people, instead of looking heavenward, are looking earthward, looking in the wrong direction. But Jesus said, lift up your eyes, your redemption draws nigh. And so, 
after saying that, some of you perhaps are blown away by that statement, but let me now prove it from the Word of God. Many people ask, well, I thought that there was going to be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Isn't, there, isn't the temple going to be rebuilt? That's the popular teaching propagated by the Left Behind series and famous evangelical scholars. But just because a scholar says it doesn't mean it's true, friends. We have to find out what does the Bible say. But the popular teaching nonetheless is that there's going to be a third temple rebuilt in Jerusalem and that God is going to give the Jews another chance during a seven-year tribulationary period. And that in the middle of the seven years, the Antichrist will appear in the temple claiming to be the Messiah, making a covenant with the Jews. Now, where do most people get this idea from? They get it from the Left Behind series, not from the Bible. But where in the Bible do they try to get this, this type of idea that there's going to be a literal temple rebuilt in Jerusalem? Or they get it from the faulty interpretation of this one verse right here. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 and 4. And I want to take the time to go through this together. We're going to study it in detail on a future night. But notice it describes the Antichrist power. And notice what this power would do. The apostle said, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, talking about the second coming of Christ, except there come the falling away, what? First. That's the great apostasy. And the man of sin be what? The man of sin, that's referring to the Antichrist. Friends, notice very carefully that the man of sin, the Antichrist, is going to be revealed first before the day of Christ's return shall come. The evangelical world says there's going to be a secret rapture first, and then after that, the Antichrist will appear, but not according to the Bible. According to the Bible, that day will not come except the man of sin be revealed first. But then notice, we'll continue. The son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sits in the what? Temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, friends, listen. Many people read this verse surfacely, and they come to the conclusion that when it says the temple of God and how the Antichrist will sit in the temple of God, people assume that that is a literal temple that's going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. They assume that that's what it means. But friends, listen, we can't build a doctrine upon an assumption that's too weak of a foundation. We have to ask the question, what, does the temple, what is the temple of God according to the understanding of the author, the Apostle Paul? In other words, when the Apostle Paul talked about the Antichrist sitting in the temple of God, did he have in mind a literal rebuilt building or did he have something else entirely different in mind. We can't just read it and assume. We have to search a little bit deeper and find out what is the temple of God according to New Testament theology. And so let me share it with you right now. What was Paul's understanding of the temple of God? Listen carefully. Here's the temple of God in the Old Testament in comparison to the New. God's people in the Old Testament was a literal nation. But God's people in the New Testament is a, what kind of nation? A spiritual nation. In the same way, God's temple in the Old Testament was a literal building. 
But God's temple in the New Testament is a spiritual building, a spiritual household of faith. How do we know? Because the Bible tells us so. I want to remind us now as we go back to Daniel chapter 9 in our mind. Remember we studied that last night for those who are here? We studied the prophecy of how God gave the Jewish nation 70 weeks of probation. Here it is in Daniel 9 verse 24. We're reviewing. If you weren't here last night, you're more than welcome to borrow the DVD so you can be caught up. But here's the short version as we review. God came to Daniel when he was in Babylonian captivity and gave 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. And during these 70 prophetic weeks, what were they to do? Finish the transgression. Make an end of sins. Make reconciliation for iniquity and bring in everlasting righteousness. Well, how long were these 70 prophetic weeks? Let's review. 70 prophetic weeks, that's 70 times 7. And remember, I've given you each day for a year. In prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year. So 70 prophetic weeks, 70 times 7, that's 490 literal years, prophetic days. We learned last night that this time period began in 457 B.C., at the decree by Artaxerxes that gave the Jews permission to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild their city and their holy temple. It began in that year, 457. Here's their time of probation where they need to uh, keep the covenant and be faithful to God. If not, they would be cut off as the representatives of God. So you fast forward, 457 B.C. plus 490 years later brings us to the year A.D. 34 where according to prophecy, God's special covenant with the literal nation of Israel would come to an end if they did not keep the covenant and put away their sins. Well, what happened in A.D. 34? Stephen, the, New Te the, the, the deacon of the New Testament church, was stoned to death. He's preaching to the Jewish Sanhedrin going over the covenant lawsuit. It was a legal indictment. They didn't like what he was saying, so they rushed upon him, and they stoned him to death. And that act of stoning Stephen was like the last straw that broke the camel's back. It, it, it's signifying the end of the 70 weeks of probation. The Jewish leaders reject the gospel openly and corporately, and then immediately after that year, the gospel now goes like wildfire to the Gentiles. We studied that last night and was fulfilled the words of Jesus in Matthew 21, 43, where Christ said to the Pharisees that the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the what? Fruits thereof. What kind of nation though? A spiritual nation, the spiritual household of faith. And so the kingdom of God, the, 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 the covenant, the, 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 the right to represent God was now taken from the literal nation of Israel and given to the New Testament church. What happened, friends, was very, very dramatic. No longer were the Israelites to be the showcase of God's grace. Now the New Testament church would fill that role. Listen, friends, this is not replace, replacement theology. This is biblical theology. The Bible tells us that when Christ came to his chosen nation, he came to his own, and his own received him not. Why? Because they didn't want freedom from sin. They wanted freedom from Rome. They didn't want heavenly graces. They, want, they wanted earthly glory, and he was not the Messiah that they were looking for. 
And so finally, after three and a half years of loving labor, in the midst of that 70th week, Christ submitted himself to the cross. And instead of crowning him as a king, they crowned him as a criminal. Instead of placing him on a throne, they nailed him to a cross. But just days before Jesus was crucified, in words of intense agony, Jesus wept over the cho chosen nation, the Jewish nation. And I want you to notice the prophetic significance of his words. Write it down. Matthew 23, verse 37 through 38. Jesus says, just days before he goes to the cross, just days before he's crucified by his own people, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Friends, when Jesus said those words, he was weeping. He was crying. He wanted to fulfill the promise that he made to their fathers in gathering them from all corners of the earth, gathering them back to Jerusalem to be the light of the world. He wanted to fulfill the promises, and he would have done it, but he said, you would not. They did not fulfill the condition. Therefore, God could not fulfill the promise. And so what happened is this. The very next words Jesus says, Behold, your house is left unto you, what? Desolate. You see, friends, at first, the temple in Jerusalem was God's house. Jesus, when he began his ministry, he cleansed the temple. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. This is my father's house. But the Jews were so caught up in their temple that they totally missed he in whom the temple was supposed to teach them about. They chose their ceremonies over their Savior and esteeming the temple of, in Jerusalem more than the Savior that it pointed to, that place of worship ended up becoming an idol for them. It was idolatry. Therefore, Jesus disassociates himself from the temple, and he says, it's no longer my house, it's your house. Your house is left to you desolate. Christ disowns this literal building, at first, he said, it's my house. That's the verse that I just mentioned, Mark eleven seventeen. 17, in case you needed it. But when they rejected him, it's no longer the temple of God. Ever after that, that literal building would be known as the desolate temple of the Jews. And friends, it's interesting. Immediately after Jesus says, your house, you go to Matthew chapter 24, and the Bible says that Jesus departs from the temple. And then he begins to prophesy about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Matthew 24, 1, Jesus went out, of the went out and departed from the temple, never again to return. Ichabod, the glory of God, is gone. And then in verse 2, he says, Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And those words were literally fulfilled 40 years later when Titus and the Roman armies came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. They committed an abomination that brought about desolation to that temple. And that's serious, friends. But these scriptures make it clear that according to New Testament theology, when Paul said the Antichrist will sit in the temple of God, he wasn't referring to a literal building 
Well, then what was he referring to? Let's allow him to tell us. Ephesians 2, verse 19 through 22, we're almost finished tonight. The Bible says, Now you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and with the household of God. You see, Paul is talking to the Gentile believers, those who were at first strangers and foreigners, but now they're fellow citizens. And it says, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto an what? Holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built, are also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Friends, according to Paul, what did he understand the temple of God to be? The New Testament church, the Gentile as well as the Jewish believers, those who had faith in Christ. Not a literal building. But the church, friends, the people of God. In fact, notice one more on this. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Paul says, Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And so what is the temple of God? It's the church, not a building, the church. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? So we see clearly tonight, friends, that the cross of Christ brought about a clear transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, a transition from literal to spiritual, literal and local to spiritual and worldwide. And here's what it looks like, friends. Here's what the cross does. It brings about a horizontal transition and a vertical transition. Here's what it looks like. Literal Israel becomes spiritual Israel in the New Testament. Old Testament, the earthly temple becomes, it now transitions to a heavenly temple where Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us and where we as the church on earth sit with Christ in heavenly places. You see, friends, those who are still looking at the Middle East for the rebuilding of a literal temple so that the literal Jews can worship again, guess what testament they're under, friends? They're under the old but friends, the cross can help us transition from the old to the new. Amen? You see, it was the literal mindedness of the Jews that caused them to reject the Messiah. And unfortunately, many evangelical Christians, because of their literal mindedness when they read the Scriptures, are missing the spiritual nature and significance of the promises and the prophecies. And friends, listen carefully. Here's the interesting thing. Even if a third temple is rebuilt, it wouldn't be a fulfillment of prophecy. Why not? Here's the reason. Tell me, friends, who did the, the temple services, who were they supposed to point us and to and teach us about? Christ, right? Everything that happened in the sanctuary, the lamb that was slain and the priest that interceded, it was to teach us about Christ. And so when Christ comes into the world, there's no longer a need for that literal temple anymore. Why? Because the shadow has met the substance. The type has met the anti-type. And that's the reason why when Jesus came and died, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. It is finished because it's met its fulfillment in Christ. But here's the thing. If you rebuild that temple again, after Christ has already come, 
that would be a denial of Christ, would it not? And would God lead anyone to build something that would be a denial of him? Of course not. But who do you think would do such a thing? Satan himself. Why? It's the decoy. It's called diversionary tactics. And it's also a direct denial of Jesus Christ. And friends, he has been so successful in doing this through the Left Behind series. This is one of his greatest deceptions in the Christian world because many sincere, wonderful people are expecting an atheistic antichrist to come in a literal temple built in Jerusalem when all the while the true antichrist has already crept within the Christian churches of the world today, not all but many, bringing his false doctrines and deceptions right under the noses of people who are looking at the Middle East when they should be looking in a very different direction. And friends, how do we respond to that tonight? That's a bombshell for many people. But when you think about it, it makes sense. You can't just use one or two verses in the Bible and make up a doctrine. You have to see what the entire, you have to get all the cooperating verses and see the consistency of the scriptures as a whole to know what truth is. So what about the Left Behind series? It's interesting reading, but it's dangerous theology, friends. Many people who read them, those who wrote them, are sincere people. We're not standing in judgment upon anyone's personal relationship with God. I believe that those who wrote these books and those who read these books are sincere and they have good intentions and, and God can use it to help people think about spiritual things. But I want you to consider that if you're to buy these books on Amazon.com, guess what category these books are in? Fiction. What does the word fiction mean? Not true. That ought to raise a red flag in your mind, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? Here's the point, friends. In order for us to know what truth is, we need to go to the source. The Bible and the Bible alone. It doesn't matter what a man says. It doesn't matter what I say or what a church teaches or what theologians and scholars are saying. We go straight to the source, and the Bible is where we find the truth. Remember this, friends. What is popular is not always right, and what is right is not always popular. And so as we close tonight, what have we discovered? Let me review everything we said in four points. What have we learned tonight from the Scriptures? Number one, we've learned that probation closed upon national Israel in the year A.D. 34. That was the ending of the 70-week prophecy. No longer are they the showcase of grace. They still can be saved as individuals if they have faith, but they're no longer the visible representatives of God on earth. Now the New Testament church is. Number two, we have learned that Israel in the New Testament is who? Jesus and then the followers of Jesus. We've also learned, number three, that the temple of God in the New Testament is not a literal building, but is simply the Christian church. And number four, we've learned that God is calling all of us to be Israelites. All of us to be Israelites. How? By faith and by being born again. Spiritual Israel is the only Israel that has end time significance. And while this may not sell many books, it will save many souls from confusion and deception. And I want you to notice how end time Israel is described. Revelation 14, verse 12, referring to the 144,000, which are spiritual Israelites. We're going to deal with that in detail on a later night. But notice the characteristics of God's end time saints. 
Revelation 14, 12 says, Here is the patience of the saints. Let's read it together. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. God's end-time saints, they not only have faith, they not only have works, but they have a faith that works because they love Jesus. And when King Jesus returns in the New Jerusalem, all of his saints, his Israelites, from the four corners of the earth are going to be gathered together into the New Jerusalem where King Jesus will sit upon the throne. And when those saints go marching in, I want to be a part of that number, don't you? The New Jerusalem, friends, where Jesus presides as king. And that's where we all want to be. How shall we respond tonight? In history, many people have responded in hate to a literal nation and have blamed the Jews for crucifying the Messiah. Many people have pointed their fingers and persecution and anti-Semitism has arrived, has, has, has arose, and, and it's satanic, friends, because God loves them just as much as he loves every single one of us. Because when you think about it, who was the one that crucified Jesus? Which race put him on the cross? Only one race did it, friends. The human race. All of us. Why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it was sin that nailed him there. Whose sin? Not just a Jewish sin, an American sin, an African sin, an Asian sin. All of us are guilty of crucifying the Messiah. But it's amazing that when Jesus looked upon the throng that murdered him, what did he see when he saw the faces at the cross? He did not see Jew or Roman. He saw humanity represented there. He saw me in the crowd. He saw your face in the crowd. But he did not respond in hate, but in unutterable love and pity and compassion as Jesus interceded for his murderers. And he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Forgive who? Jew and Roman? No, forgive you and me. That prayer embraces all of us tonight. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was praying for you, friend, and he was praying for me. How many of you are thankful for that tonight? You see, Christ is Israel. He is the Prince of Peace. He is Israel. Why? Because in a time of deep despair on the cross, he did not let go. Remember Jacob? In his dark hour, when all the world was, was against him. Jacob, when it seemed like the promise of God was not going to be fulfilled, he held on by faith. So too Jesus, when on the cross, when all the world was against him, when it seemed like even the Father had forsaken him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When it seemed like the promise of the Father was not going to be fulfilled, Jesus, just like Jacob, held on, and he said, my God, my God. He didn't just say, God, God. He said, my God. In other words, God, even though it seems like you're forsaking me, I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to hang on to you as my God. Jesus, it was like he was saying, I will not let you go, Father. Even though it seems like you've let me go, 
I'm not going to let you go. Not only that, friends, but it was like Jesus was saying to humanity, I'm not going to let you go. Because, friends, he could have come off the cross. He didn't have to stay there and die. He could have called 10,000 angels and gone back to heaven. But if he did, that would have been letting go of the human race into eternal oblivion. But Christ, it was like he was saying to you and me, I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to hang on to you as I hang on to this old rugged cross, and I'll pay your debt in full. I will not let you go. God has not let you go, friend. You may have sinned much, made mistakes. He's not let you go. His hold is on you tonight. And how many of you want to say in response, Lord, because you haven't let me go, help me to never let you go. Help me to cling to the old rugged cross. And one day I'll exchange that old rugged cross for the crown of life. Is that your prayer? Tonight, how many of you want to be an Israelite of God? If so, I invite you to pray with me as we close. Dear Lord, thank you so much for such a beautiful picture we have seen tonight. From Genesis to Revelation, Lord, we have surveyed the whole Bible from beginning to end. And the message we see is a consistent message that you want all of us to be Israel. It doesn't matter what race or nationality we've been born in, that we can be your princes and princesses, your Israelites, after the Spirit, because of our faith in Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for dying, for winning the victory, for hanging on by faith, not only to the Father, but for hanging on to us. Lord, would you please hold us close? We go through things in life, dear God, and sometimes we feel like giving up. We feel like letting go. Tonight, Lord, help us to not let go. Help us, Lord, that we might say in our hearts, I will not let you go, God, except you bless me. Give us the blessed assurance tonight as we leave. Bring us back on Wednesday and Thursday as we continue this journey in, in truth. We thank you that truth is too clear for us to be confused. Help us as we go home to study this further if we have questions. And I pray that your spirit will guide us. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer. We pray this prayer in Jesus' blessed name. And all of God's Israelites said, Amen. Amen. Were you blessed? Praise God.